0: It's Isaiah 52, 13 to 56, 53, 6. I'm going to take a moment to read the passage. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the child, children of mankind. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be discarded. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For the maker is your... I'm going to start again. (laughs) I was like, this doesn't make any sense, and it's because I flipped two pages. Join me here at Isaiah 52, 13, and I'll turn one page at a time. I was like, I didn't read this beforehand. Abby's going to think twice about asking me to do this again. Okay. (laughs) Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told that them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand."
1: Thank you, Sarah, and good morning, Redeeming Grace. It's good to gather with you. Uh, As Sarah said, my name is Justin, one of the pastors here, and just grateful for the opportunity to worship with you this morning. Uh, Whether, again, this is your first time, maybe you're visiting in town with family this Christmas season, Uh, whoever you are and wherever you've come from, we're grateful that God's brought you to gather with us this morning. I did want to mention one of our pastors, Kenneth, is actually not here this morning. Uh, He's actually preaching over at Providence Baptist Church in the Tysons area, and we want to be a church that encourages and comes alongside other churches Right now, they only have one staff pastor, and so he is giving him a break this morning and being able to serve Providence Baptist. As we dive into God's word, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Oh God, we praise you for who you are. God, we praise you for your goodness and for your grace. God, we give you thanks for the blessing of Advent. We give you thanks for the gift it is to gather together this morning. God, I know some of us are coming in this morning feeling joyful. Others of us are coming in feeling weary and tired, suffering in various ways. God, I pray that no matter where we're at this morning and how we're coming in, that as we open up your word, that you would help us. God, I pray as we open up your word, you would encourage us. Give us mercy in our time of need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I say the term hardwired, what comes to mind for you? My guess is if you're technically minded, you might think of hardwiring an appliance into the electrical system of your home or a permanently installed part of a computer. For others of us, though, we know that the term hardwired comes up in kind of a psychological sense, talking about personality or human characteristics that a person has. We might say something like he's hardwired to work hard or he, she's hardwired to be protective. Author and pastor Paul Tripp says one thing that all humans are hardwired with is hope. So much so that we use the language of hope all the time. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I get that new job. I hope my kids will sleep through the night. I hope he'll ask me out. I hope I'll get into that college that I really want to go to. We use the language of hope Because you and I live in a world filled with uncertainty and challenge. I mean, if you think about it, if everything was easy, if everything was certain in our lives, then we wouldn't have much need for hope. But that isn't the world that we find ourselves in. And so all of us regularly put our hope in someone or something. So let me ask you this morning, in an often wearying world, what or who are you putting your hope in? Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the time of year that we set aside to remember and to reflect and to celebrate the Advent or the arrival of Jesus, Jesus coming into this world. And to do that this year, we've been walking through various passages in the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book that was written some 700 years before Jesus was born. As we've been walking through this, we've seen that Isaiah has said a lot of hard things to God's people culminating in the declaration that they would be taken into exile by Babylon because of their disobedience, because of their disregard for God and his good ways. But as we got to Isaiah chapter 40, we saw that Isaiah changed his tone. He changed his message and begins to declare a message of hope. It will be bad for a while, but not forever, because God will deliver you. God will restore you. And he'll do that by sending, as we saw last week, his mysterious servant to rescue you. As we come to our text today, we come to the pinnacle of this message of hope that Isaiah has been talking about. And what we'll see is what this servant will do to bring about the deliverance of God's people. The reality is we all find ourselves in a similar place to God's people then, longing, hoping, for things in our lives, things in our world to be different, to be better. See, we not only need the message of hope that Isaiah is declaring, we need the object of hope that Isaiah is pointing us to. And what we'll see is that God's servant came to give us hope in our suffering by suffering for us. By his wounds, we are healed. Listen, no matter what's going on in your life right now, good or bad, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey this morning, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a really long time, or maybe you're here just checking out who Jesus is, this Christmas Eve morning, my hope is that you will find hope and you'll find healing today and in the days ahead. So let's dive into Isaiah 52 and 53 and may God bless the preaching of his word Last week, we saw that the servant of the Lord will not only bring the preserved of Israel back from exile, but he'll also be a light to the nations, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when we come to Isaiah 52, verse 13, we see that what Isaiah says is keeping in line with that. And we first see that God's servant will be exalted Look at Isaiah 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah calls people in exile in Babylon and everyone in between to behold. That means to look, to set our gaze on the servant of God. The Hebrew phrase that we see in this verse translated act wisely means that the servant of God will succeed at his task because he knows how to navigate it wisely and successfully. And because he will be successful, the servant of God will be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. Now this isn't language that we usually use for just any kind of regular person. And when we see throughout scripture, it isn't used to describe just anyone. It's language used to describe God himself. In Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah has his first vision and calling from God, he says he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. Could this servant of God that Isaiah is talking about actually be God? Isaiah goes on to say, verses 14 and 15, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Now it gets a little interesting here. What exactly does he mean by his appearance being marred beyond human semblance? We'll come back, back to that in a minute. But what we see is that whoever this servant is, two things are going to happen. First, he will sprinkle the nations. This has the, the sense of or the idea of a priest sprinkling his people as a picture of cleansing And second is that we see when the kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth actually see this servant for who he is, they'll be speechless. And we'll see why in a moment. So God has promised to deliver his people. And now he tells them how he's going to do that. But what comes next is unexpected. What comes next is the opposite of what they thought would happen. God's servant will be exalted But now we see that God's servant will be unimpressive and disregarded. Look at Isaiah 53 verse one. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah starts by asking, who's believed this message of hope, of this future rescue? Who, Who will God actually reveal this plan of salvation to? And then he tells the origin story of this exalted servant writing it in a definitive way as if it's already happened. That's how sure he is that it'll come to be. And from our vantage point now in 2023, it has. In verse two, we learn, he says that he grows up like a young plant. Just a metaphor of, of your normal kind of growing up. Sounds pretty normal, our experience for all of us. But then it says he grew up like a root out of dry ground. In other words, the environment that this servant grew up in is dry and sterile like a desert wasteland. doesn't sound very exalting. But not only that, the rest of verse two says, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. My family jokes that a common characteristic uh, of the Pearsons is that we are an easily forgettable people. We've all had the experience of meeting someone multiple times because they don't remember meeting us the first time or the second time, or sometimes even the third time. We are a people, I guess, that just have normal faces that are forgotten in the crowd. What Isaiah is saying here is that the servant of God who will be exalted, he's a face forgotten in the crowd. He won't be impressive. He won't garner a lot of attention. There won't be anything about him or his appearance that will draw people to him. It doesn't quite seem right, this rescuer, this servant of God. I mean, he's supposed to be the deliverer of God's people. And historically, normally, a deliverer would be dominating and forceful. He would draw people to himself with his magnetism. This man that Isaiah is describing, though, doesn't seem to fit that picture. It's the opposite of what the people expected for a deliverer. But it gets even more interesting. Verse three He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Not only was this servant not going to be impressive, he was also going to be despised and rejected. Now, again, in the original language in Hebrew, to despise is about considering someone unworthy of attention. So this isn't initially an outright overt rejection as much as it is a hasty dismissal. The servant is, a, is disregarded by people. Why? Well, because he was a man of sorrows, because he was acquainted with grief. He doesn't seem like a winner. He looks like a loser, Therefore, he's avoided, he's stepped around, he's ignored. As one scholar says, to a world blinded by selfishness and power, he doesn't even merit a second thought. This description is the opposite to what the people of God in need of rescue expected. Yet, yet this is who the rescuing, delivering servant will be. But not only will he be unimpressive and disregarded, In order to give us hope, God's servant will suffer for us. Look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The we here is broad when it says we. So we can't look at what he says here, what Isaiah says here, and just think of it being about people from a long time ago or people out there. Isaiah is locating himself. He's locating his readers then and now in this message and what he's about to say. This is about and includes you and me. And what he says here is profound. The servant is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And we assumed that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because God was displeased with him. He must have done something wrong, brought about the sadness on himself. So how could he possibly save us? What could he do to do that? How could he bring any help or hope to our lives? But they were wrong. We're wrong. No, he doesn't bear his own griefs. He bears our griefs. He doesn't carry his own sorrows. He carries our sorrows. And why is the world sorrowful? Why is it grieved? It's because of sin, because of rebellion against God and his ways. See, we have to understand that when our first parents rebelled against God in the garden, they were essentially saying to God, I don't need you. I want to go my own way, I'm good on my own. And so God gave them over to what they desired to live life apart from him on their own, but they quickly found out, they quickly learned that they're not good on their own because that isn't the way that they were designed to live, designed to operate. We were all designed to live life under God's kindly rule. But their rebellion now put them at odds with God. It put them at enmity with God and it plunged the world into cosmic chaos, into darkness and death. That means now that everything about life, everything about our existence becomes difficult and challenging from work to our health to relationships. And since that day, every person born into this world is born not only with a rebellious heart and a rebellious mind that continues to assert self over and above anything else, including God, but also we are born into this world experiencing the effects of sin, leading to all the sorrow and all the grief we experience, both at the micro and macro level. But what we have to see in all of this is that what Isaiah is highlighting here is that our greatest problem in life isn't out there. It's in here, it's in our heart. The Bible tells us out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our heart is where the the motivational structure of our life resides. Our will, our desires flow out of our worship, flows out of our heart. That's why he says, if you look down at verse six, the beginning of verse six, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone without exception to his own way. We've all said, God, I don't need you. Just like Adam and Eve did. We've all said, I can do this on my own. Without you, I'm fine by myself. I'm going to chart my own path. I'm going to be the leader and the Lord of my own life. And But the reality is, that's a broken way to live. And no matter what you or I do to try and fix the problem, to try to relieve ourselves of the sorrow we experience and the grief we carry, it won't work because we can't rid ourselves of a sin-sick heart. We may be hardwired for hope, but we're also hardwired to rebel. We need someone else to fix it for us. We can't take out that heart that only lives for itself and change it and transform it. We need someone else to do that work in us and for us. And in the most unexpected way, that's what Isaiah says the servant of God has come to do. Verses five and six. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all for honest we tend to make light of our shortcomings we tend to explain away our mistakes but this shows us the seriousness of our sin these are strong words that isaiah used here transgression iniquities He's trying to help us understand the treason that we've committed against God. And because of the seriousness of of it, we can't be swept under the rug. It must be dealt with. And so the servant of God, who's unimpressive, who's disregarded, comes to be the solution. The people of God were longing for a deliverer to come, but he doesn't march into town with an army following after him. He doesn't come into the city with force. No, he comes and lays down his life to overcome and defeat our greatest enemy of sin and death. And when we ha- when he does that, we experience not just peace in our life, but peace with God. All of it was laid on him. He carried the burden that we should be carrying ourselves. Karen Jobes, a scholar and author, writes this. She says, "'The fatal physical wounds of the suffering servant "'heal the fatal spiritual wounds.'" of rebels like you and me. See, he doesn't just suffer as a result of the sin of humanity. He suffers in place of the sin of humanity, in place of you, in place of me. This servant becomes a substitute for us. The New Testament speaks of this. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning this servant, to be sin who knew no sin. It wasn't his own sorrows. It wasn't his own grief. Why did he do that? So that in him, in this servant, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might have peace with him. That we might be reconciled to him. This is undeserved grace. And if we're honest, if we were writing a story of rescue and a, res- a story of deliverance, we wouldn't have written it this way. With someone so unimpressive and disregarded, suffering wouldn't have been a part of the picture. But what we have to see in this is what God demands from us, he has given to us. So who is this unimpressive suffering servant? He's the one who dwelt with the father in perfect and eternal glory, but who willingly entered the mess of this world, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He's the one who, after he was born, the angels declared to shepherds in a field, glory to God and the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's the one who wasn't born in a place of honor or prestige, but in humble circumstances. He's the one who spent the first 30 years of his life working and living in obscurity, unnoticed and unimpressive. He's the one who was baptized by a crazy preacher type out in the wilderness, He's the one who had a small following for the most part of his life and was glanced over, was disregarded early on. He is the one who at the height of his popularity was arrested, falsely accused, condemned, and killed on a Roman cross with his followers scattering. He's the one who the angel told Joseph, his adoptive father, 700 years after Isaiah wrote this to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means to rescue, to save, or God saves. Jesus is the one who entered the messy world and can sympathize with you in your weaknesses and sorrows. Jesus is the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus is the one who was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is the one whose chastisement brought us peace. Jesus is the one who came to give us hope, for by his wounds, you and I are healed. Isaiah said God's servant would be high and lifted up. God's servant would be exalted. Dying on a cross with all of his followers scattering away doesn't seem like that, but that wasn't the end of the story we can now see more clearly how that's actually true because after three days, Jesus rose again from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God. And listen to me, one day he will come again and he will make all things new. And It doesn't matter if you're powerful or the poor in spirit, the only thing anyone will be able to say at that moment is Jesus is Lord. Now in all of this, you may think, be thinking, that's great, but what does this have to do with Advent. This seems like a text more fitting for Good Friday than Christmas. But we have to remember there is no Good Friday apart from Christmas. There is no resurrection apart from the incarnation. There is no second advent of Christ coming again and making all things new apart from the first advent of him entering into the mess of this world. See, the reality is Christmas says that our world is far worse than we could have imagined it says that we are far worse than we could have imagined. Left to ourselves, we are lost and alone in this world without hope, but the good news of Advent is that hope has come to town, and his name is Jesus. So this Christmas, as you think of a baby lying in a manger, think also of the cross he was heading to for you. By his wounds, we are healed. Friends, Jesus came to rescue sufferers and to give us hope by becoming a sufferer from the time of his birth all the way to the cross. It may have happened in the opposite way that we would expect, but the exalted servant was rejected so we could be received. He was despised so we could be forgiven. He was pierced so we could have peace. The one who was high and lifted up was humbled to the point of death on a cross so that we could have hope now And forever. So let me ask you, do you know him? Not just know about him. Do you know the suffering servant? Do you know Jesus? And have you placed your hope in him? Listen, we're all hardwired for hope. But let me plead with you this morning to stop looking for it in other people or other things, whatever that happens to be. All of those things, relationships, job, bank accounts, shiny things under the Christmas tree. They will all let you down and leave you empty. Find hope in the suffering servant. Find hope in Jesus. The Bible tells us that if you call on him, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that your confession is that he is Lord, you'll experience rescue and redemption. If you find yourself this morning experiencing and walking in darkness, come and place your hope in Jesus. He is the light of the world. And if you want to learn more about him, more about what it means to know him and to follow him, let me encourage you to sign up for a class we have starting in January called Christianity Explored. It starts January the 10th, every Wednesday night. Sit down with a group of people and open up God's word and just look and see who Jesus is. It's a wonderful time. Whether you, again, maybe you're just checking out who Jesus is, or maybe you find yourself this morning, like, I know a lot about him, but I don't know that I really know him. Come out to this class, come sign up for it. The gift that was mentioned earlier, if you're a guest, grab one of those. There's more information about the class included with that. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you this morning, this Christmas Eve, to keep believing. Keep believing in the good news of the suffering servant amidst all of the distractions and all the difficulties of life. Right now, we're experiencing all of that in different ways. Challenges with maybe our kids at home or our adult children. Challenges at work physical suffering right now, longings that we have that are maybe even good longings that aren't being met right now, whatever those things are, keep believing in the good news of the suffering servant. It might be hard right now, but let me encourage you to remember this Christmas that because he came the first time as promised by by Isaiah, you and I can have hope that he will come again to bring full peace and final healing to our lives, into our world, that he will come again to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, holy, magnificent God, you are merciful and gracious. God, you are full of steadfast love and faithfulness, not to perfect people, but to sinners like me, like us. God, we need rescue. And you gave it to us in and through Jesus, the suffering servant. God, we need hope and we find it in him. God, I pray this Christmas that you will lead all of us to believe the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead all of us to place all of our hope in him above everything else by his wounds we are healed we pray this in Jesus' name amen